Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Hello and welcome back once again to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. I am Megan. And I am Lauren. And we are very excited to be back. How's everyone doing? Yeah, how are you guys doing? I'm starting this uh, this year off with a new mic. We're going to see if it helps. Oh, what kind of mic did you get? It is a, a blue Yeti. I'm also, I'm, I have the blue Snowball, which I think is related to the blue Yeti, so. Yeah, they're probably like sisters, cousins something they're they're related somehow we've we've apparently gone all in on blue so let us know how's the audio yeah you guys usually let us know you're very kind about that yeah i honestly appreciate all your guys's feedback on stuff that we can work on and make us better and hopefully this makes things better too and i've done a little sound proofing in here as well so hopefully you guys notice a difference hopefully yes so i guess uh First things first, we should thank you guys for your patience during our accidental hiatus of the <laughs> As uh, we do. podcast. Uh, we got some very sweet messages, mostly just be of concern for our well-being, uh, because I, we did drop the ball on communication there for a while. Yeah. We probably should have explained some of what was going on yeah. um, a bit better than we actually did. So we are sorry. sorry. We will try to be better on communicating such things with you in the future mm-hmm. um so i think first of all we should address the multiple factors that led to the accidental hiatus of that um so starting with the our last episode on incels oh, God. was a nightmare Absolute to record nightmare. And to edit, and that definitely threw us back. Lauren handled the editing, so I'll let you explain a little bit of what happened there. Oh, Lord. It it just... I had to really Frankenstein a lot together. Um, so something happened... I'm trying to even remember, because this was a while ago. But I think, like, it stopped recording Yeah, I think mine point. stopped recording. And then the audio became uneven. And then I had to sync it up and then just like a bunch of, um, I want to say like at that point, maybe my, um, audio stopped syncing to like my microphone and it started going to like my headphones, which caused it to be like really shitty quality audio. And Mm -hmm. so it was just, it was a mess. I'm sorry. Did the best that I could. But we're coming in fresh. It's a new year. New microphones. We got this. Yes, we worked on that. So that one was both. And I think, like, I even think that recording, we had to, like, reschedule because, like, everyone was getting sick. And so that one was just, like, that episode (laughs) was did a lot more work than I think any other episode we did. That being said, though, I know we casually mentioned this in that episode. So in case anyone's wondering... Uh, Lauren, I can't speak for you. I have not gotten any angry messages from incels no. about that one. So, okay, yeah, we're I'm good pleased. on that front. Yeah, we are safe. A <laughs> so, little, little bit worried with two women doing a podcast about incels that we were going to get some some shit coming our way. But uh, luckily, no. Everyone was polite and quiet if they had problems. Um, yeah. Which, you know, 
Not that we're concerned if you have, like, issues with the content that you'd like to discuss in a nice way. We were more just concerned about an incel hate storm coming our way from right. that. But, uh, you know what? They they didn't happen. So didn't that was happen. that was... That was a pleasant surprise. Yeah. Uh, that was great. So after <laughs> that whole thing, we, yeah. we both had some life events that also got in the way of recording, which I'll let Lauren share first. So your girl is taking a break from um, being a therapist, and I actually have a new job where I am doing clinical content um, and using like skills with like recording and audio and like all that fun stuff that I do here um and actually get paid for it so that's really exciting it is yeah so there was definitely uh very happy for you Mm -hmm. I'm I'm loving your new gig and I think uh, it's very good for you so there there was some gapping in that Mm -hmm. um just because obviously when you're transitioning jobs like that there just wasn't I mean you just had so much to do and get yeah, ready and just figure out schedule figuring all that out um so yeah so now now I am settled yeah so you are settled um so you got settled with that and then my news just in case anybody had a spooky baby on their bingo card for why Spooky psychology was gapped. I am indeed pregnant, and that also got <laughs> in the way um, of recording because, um, as you guys know from my whole explanation of uh, fibromyalgia in that episode, I do have a chronic illness. I'm also pregnant. Um, I'm super fortunate that I my illness does not actually make my pregnancy high risk, which there was debate about there were evaluations i have been declared low risk but um definitely causes some just general unpleasantness i've already done an entire round of physical therapy um which three times a week appointments definitely got into uh the way to record also i just straight up slept for three months and that's okay that's so okay that that was that was a good good time in life first trimester i uh i pretty much ate chicken nuggets worked and slept and that's all that happened um i'm just approaching my third trimester now i am due in april i don't know exactly what that will mean for the podcast but we will figure that out um been making lots of other decisions so that one hasn't been made yet um but yes i am that is a thing. That is another thing that's it's happened. So I'm exciting. having a, it is, and I'm having a boy, and he is doing great. I'm doing pretty good at this point in time, so mm-hmm. everything is good. And naturally, our children will be best friends. They will be best friends until they're old enough to tell us that they don't want to be best friends. We're like, well, sorry, you still have to. <laughs> we'll allow some autonomy, but you're gonna need to. They, they have to at least peacefully coexist at social events. That's kind of kind of the bare minimum. Luckily, when they're little, I mean, I feel like with infant and toddler friendships, they can just, like, unite really well about yeah. blocks. Yeah, simple things. Well, simple things. Well, Fun and it's, toys, it's noises. It's nice, though, because I didn't realize until after having Benny, like, okay, in order for them to have little friends, that means you also have to hang out with their parents. 
And I was like, oh no. <laughs> so it's nice to have like built-in friends. It, it is. In our, our friend group of mutual friends, there's just a lot of people who either haven't had kids yet or have yeah. chosen to not have children, which is great. You should really ideally want to have children to yeah, have them. So of very supportive of everyone who decides not to. I completely get it. Um, but it is helpful when you just have people you're already friends yeah. with that are also having kids because it's just like, Easy. at least I know I like you. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't need to work through a whole thing. And uh, I think our ki- our kids will obviously, the age gap will be a lot when they're very little, but like will they not get be older. that big in the yeah. grand scheme of things. So That's it will so be quite funny. nice. Ideally. Yeah, I would say our, wasn't our last hiatus uh, baby related? It was. I yeah. think our last long one was, uh, yeah, was when you had Benny. Yeah. So if you're keeping data, um, it, we're tracking for if there's a hiatus, usually one of us are pregnant. <laughs> usually there's a baby coming. I was just like, and I think everyone's nice enough to directly ask. But I also know when we when you announced your pregnancy, we did get at least one comment that was just like, I knew it in all caps. Yeah. So I'm like, y'all figure some things out. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, I will say just from in editing standpoint. I don't know if this gives certain things away, but like you can also tell when pregnancy brain starts to kick in when you're recording, <laughs> when you're editing the podcast. Yeah. And I'm sure some of it slipped through last time. Like I'm sure it's going to slip through for me as well. Cause man, that memory thing is very legitimate. Mm-hmm. And like, there's definitely some like, wait, what are we doing? And like getting lost and like tracking things Mm -hmm. that can be weird. So I don't know exactly what you guys picked up on with Lauren or if you were just like suspicious in general, but you figured that out. I'm sure some people figured it out as well. I think also, you know, when it came to content selection while I was pregnant, I know a lot of times when we brainstorm about stuff, naturally my brain was like baby stuff baby napping like all of like that kind of stuff so I feel like those also were like unintentional clues from my subconscious yeah we did do we did do an entire series on kidnapping while you were pregnant um (laughs) which was your idea so yeah I'm kind of tempted to potentially do an episode just on the mental health and like cognitive impact of pregnancy in general yeah don't know if it's going to freak me out a little bit too much, quite frankly, because you read some research and, um, you know, I think this is what I said to you back when you were pregnant, but I'm like, pregnancy is like equal parts beautiful and absolutely horrifying. A thousand like, percent. Yeah. The more you learn, it's just like, oh, and I think sometimes it's better to not know certain things. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to throw this out there in case any of our listeners are currently or considering becoming pregnant because I did not know this before I was apparently nosebleeds just super common like I just I went through a month period where I had a nosebleed pretty much every single day when I woke up and I told my OB that and they're like that's fine you just have more blood now and I was like okay um I had that too but with my gums but I think Uh I had chalked it up to being on blood thinners but then I read about it and I was just like 
Oh, that's interesting. There's just a lot of bizarre things that happen in your body, and then you Google them, and then Google's just like, this is normal, and you're like, how is this all normal? (laughs) We're just gonna blanket statement, it's okay. And they're like, it's fine, so. Yeah, a lot of it's very alien-ish. I definitely, yeah, I mean, I I think because it was so alien-ish, we started watching the Alien series, like all like the movies. And the night I went into labor, I was watching Alien. I'm confident you're not in labor. Mm -hmm. And then I just did. And then the next morning, literally like 5 a.m., I got a text from you that's like, got admitted to the hospital, apparently in actual labor. And I was like, okay, good. Well, you know, you're being taken care of. So that's all good. But I distinctly remember you texting me that you were watching Alien. I do think uh, at this point in time with what I've been watching, because I keep falling asleep in front of Unsolved Mysteries, I think these three voices... Something about Robert Stack's voice. (laughs) And that's why I'm just like, the three voices my child will recognize are mine, my husband's, and Robert Stack. (laughs) (laughs) As it should be. (laughs) As it should be, so... But that's not what we're talking about today. <laughs> today. That's not. <laughs> we're talking about arson. Arson and arsonists. Um, so, yeah, this is one that um, our patrons had voted on with equal popularity of incels and arsonists. We're both equally popular. So here we are with arson. Some research to address to some specific questions we got from our patrons mm-hmm. about that. Um, about arson as a concept so I think it's going to be good and I believe we're starting off with Lauren's going to give us some good information I'm going to give some other information and we're just going to have a good time we are and I'm going to take a strange detour you'll know when it happens just because that's the way my brain works okay that is Um, so for those of you that don't know Arson and pyromania are terms used to describe intentional fires set within specific contexts. So one is more of a legal term and the other one is more of the psychiatric term. Fire setting is the current preferred term in the literature to describe acts of deliberately started fires regardless of their legal legal or diagnostic status. So arson, the legal definition for that, is used to describe the crime of either intentionally or recklessly starting a fire in order to destroy or damage property or land. Not all intentional acts of starting a fire result in conviction of arson. For example, an offender who has committed arson where a person has died may result in a murder conviction rather than arson. Legal provisions for arson differ between countries and jurisdictions like any other crime. Pyromania is an impulse control disorder listed in the DSM-5 and ICD-10, characterized as repeatedly setting deliberate fires to either relieve tension or effective arousal, or to experience instant gratification. And I think this is the point in time we just quickly clarify that affective arousal does not necessarily mean sexual arousal, but it theoretically can. Definitely. Yeah, all sorts of different ones, but I think most people know about the sexual one. 
Um, and then fire setting, just like a quick definition for that. All acts of intentionally setting fire to property, land, and other people and individuals themselves, inclusive of pyromania and acts that do not result in conviction for arson. Mm -hmm. Okay, now we are all on the same page. All right, so if you're curious about what is pyromania in the DSM, so again, looking at it from that mental health standpoint, um, you can get a diagnosis of pyromania based on some of these factors. So the person deliberately and purposefully sets fires on more than one occasion. He or she experiences tension or effective arousal before the act. The individual has a fascination with or attraction to fire. He or she feels pleasure, gratification, or relief when setting fires, witnessing fires, or participating in their aftermath. The fire setting is not done for monetary gain as an expression of socio-political ideology or anger to conceal criminal activity to improve one's living circumstances in response to a delusion or hallucination or as a result of impaired judgment. The fire setting is not better or reasonably explained by a manic episode or other disorder. So what they're getting at there is, you know, there's very specific um, criteria that would cause this diagnosis because what they're describing is, you know, if you are having a delusion or a hallucination, that's different than pyromania that, you know, can be related to schizophrenia, um, you know, having hallucinations that you need to start a fire. I mean, there's all different things that can happen. Obviously, um, another one they brought up was monetary gain. There are people that set fires to their homes, um, trying to get insurance payouts, things like that. Mm -hmm. All right. So who is at risk of developing pyromania? So according to the DSM-5, Although it's not clear what age pyromania typically begins to develop, fire setting is a major problem in children and adolescents as over 40% of those arrested for arson in the United States are shy of 18 years old. However, juvenile fire setting is commonly explained by conduct disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or an adjustment disorder. Additionally, pyromania exists more frequently in males, particularly those who have social and learning difficulties. There commonly is the saying that starting fires as a child is an indicator. This is better explained by conduct disorders um, or neurodivergency. Um, um, but yeah, it'll, it'll be explained by a constellation of impulse control issues. So just to kind of talk about that for a second, I think when it comes to like an impulse control disorder, what you'll notice is they'll struggle with impulse control in a lot of areas in their life. It won't just be like just fire starting. Like there will be mm -hmm. a trail of things going on to explain right. what's going on. Right, because that was a question one of our patrons asked, was like, is setting fires actually as big of a red flag as some people think it is? And um, I will go a lot into detail into some of the research into childhood fire starting, because ultimately, like anything that could be a red flag in childhood, the answer is always maybe. And it depends on the greater context of the child's behavior, because there is a quote-unquote 
normal amount of fire setting behavior in childhood that's actually not that much of a concern that we'll go into so it is interesting because sometimes it's pyromania sometimes it's impulse control sometimes it's just that kids are weird and trying to learn about their environment and very very bad at calculating risk yeah yeah i would definitely agree with that and i think when it comes to children, you know, the best way to think about them is like little scientists where they do all sorts of experiments all the time. And one of those oftentimes is fire setting and just doing other stuff where it's like, why would you do that? And it's like, you know, usually they don't know. They're just trying to figure out the world. Yeah. And the thing is, this is something that I say all the time to parents when I'm working with kids is if your kid, particularly if we're talking about an actual child, Mm -hmm. so pre-adolescence, if you ask them why they did something, like they did something stupid and you ask them why and they tell you they just wanted to see what happened, that is probably the accurate answer. And I think adults want more than that because that's not how our brains work. Like a lot of times we're not going to do something quite that extreme um, as the kids might just to see what did happen. But yeah, a lot of times they will like they're yeah. genuinely curious And they'll do things that have consequences that they never would have anticipated. And that's just, it's how their brains work. They're trying to learn things really, really fast. And sometimes that presents as incredibly risky behavior. And they just don't, they don't have heuristics like adults do. They don't have that ability to have like cognitive shortcuts with things. They're just like, I really have no idea what's going to happen. Like. I'm going to check it out. Might as well try. All right. So next. So in case you were curious, (laughs) between 2010 (laughs) 2010 and 2014, an estimated 261,330 intentional fires were reported to the U.S. municipal fire departments each year, resulting in 440 deaths and 1,310 injuries, and the economic cost of fire setting was estimated to be as high as $328.5 billion per year. It's pretty significant. It's a lot. Typically, fire setting is viewed not as a distinct disorder, but as a behavior that stems from another deep-seated pathology. So arsonists, again, so here we're using the legal term, differ from typical violent offenders and being more socially isolated, lacking coping skills, and the prevalence of suicide is significantly higher in in the current research. Females are reported to commit nearly one-third of deliberate uh, set fires, but less is known about psychopathological and criminal characteristics of female fire setters. Female fire setters in a recent study were often diagnosed with depression, substance abuse, and personality disorders compared to male arsonists. That's interesting. It is. So, in terms of profiling, um, so so in the legal world, um, you know, obviously, you know, considering lives lost, um, people injured, you know, how costly it can be you know related to these fires um just different jurisdictions are really interested in preventative measures and so 
when we talk about profiling here, what we're talking about is, okay, based on what we know of people who have committed these crimes, you know, are there trends? Are there things that we're seeing? Is there reasoning behind what they're doing? Um, so one trend that they noticed was excitement-motivated offenders. So the excitement-motivated fire starter is excited by the actual fire setting and very often the activities surrounding the fire suppression efforts. The thrill could also include pathological need for attention. Unlike other fire starters, these individuals may stack on the scene, or sorry, may stay on the scene in order to be in a position to respond to the fire and become a quote unquote hero. Some will mingle in the crowd to watch the fire or return later to assess the damage. Typically, vegetation, stacks of lumber, construction sites, dumpsters, and abandoned properties are targeted, but occupied residential property may be as well. A match cigarette delay device is often used, especially for vegetation fires, but simply, but simple incendiary devices can also be utilized. And all that means is just something to get the fire started without actually having to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so those offenders typically are adolescent or young males they may already have a history of quote-unquote nuisance offenses and are perceived by others as being socially inept they're they are known to keep journals notes records and maps documenting the fires as well as newspaper articles about the fires they often have police or fire scanner apps on their smartphones as well Um, The next one is vandalism-motivated arson. So um, this one is malicious or mischievous fire setting that results in damage to property. Sometimes the fire will be set wherever the opportunity arises, but most are set after school work hours or on weekends. Typically, they will use available material to set fires with matches or cigarette lighters, And the vandalism-motivated arsonist may not be a single offender. Sometimes they are a group of juvenile males who likely still live at home with their parents. The offender or offenders may already be known to the police. Typically, they they live within one and a half kilometers. I don't know what that is in miles. Very sorry. uh, From the crime scene and walk or ride their bikes to the scene. Usually they will leave the scene after setting the fire and often won't return to watch the firefighting activities that generates. So definitely different, um, different mental perspectives. Like you can see a huge contrast in the reasoning between these two. Um, The next one is revenge-motivated arson. So revenge and spite-motivated fires are set in retaliation for real or imagined injustice perceived by the offender. The victim generally has a history of interpersonal or professional conflict with the offender. So this could be like a landlord-tenant dispute, employee-employer, lover's triangle, etc. The fires can be set months or years after the original incident, former intimate offenders frequently burn clothing, bedding, or personal effects. Female offenders often target something of significance to the victim, such as their vehicle or personal effects. Mm-hmm. Societal revenge fire setters often target institutions, government facilities, corporations, and universities. Revenge arsonists 
tend to have below average intelligence and often commit the crime in a highly emotional state while under the influence of alcohol. All right, um, pyromania. So one of the bigger motivations for pyromania um, tends to be that setting the fire is sexual. Mm-hmm. So some even masturbate after setting the fire. Yep. Which I think that's the one a lot of people think of when, when they, they think say of pyromaniac. Arson. Right, when you think of pyromania or just when you think of like arson, people just kind of might assume a sexual... It's fairly rare for that mm-hmm. to actually be the motivation, but it does happen. Yeah, and it's, it's just funny because like... Well, it's not funny, but... You know, when you hear about someone setting deliberate fires, I think people will use the term pyromaniac, like, oh, they're a pyromaniac. But you're not really understanding what that actually means. That actually means there's, like, a form of, like, arousal that's associated with the whole process. Yep. Like, there, there is an actual, psych- it's a psychological diagnosis. Mm-hmm. It's not just a term for people who set fires. Like, there has to be a very specific set of, like, physical things happening in your brain in order for it to technically qualify as pyromania. That's right. Now you guys know. So, if you're curious about treatment... Um, So those who engage in fire setting are often complex individuals with a diverse set of treatment or intervention needs, warranting a specialist approach um, so that we can reduce further offending. That's really the goal. Mm -hmm. Most specialists um, are underpinned by cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, That's kind of the gold standard in a lot of different things. CBT is kind of like a, it, it it works for most things so that's yeah. almost always going to be the thing that comes up in research yep targeting a range of needs that they may have uh, so they would start with things associated with the fire setting which may include things like cognitive distortions or you know thought errors poor problem solving communication difficulties self-regulation deficits so they have a (laughs) they have trouble calming themselves down uh relapse prevention treatment often includes a component on fire safety education and the consequences of fire setting while also addressing a range of associated interpersonal problems for example they might work through things like low self-esteem social competence difficulties and poor goal setting to address childhood fire starting As a concept. So first of all, I tried to find information as to how common it actually is for kids to light things on fire. I could not find a single piece of research that indicated how common this is. So I'm going to tell you my incredibly informal, unscientifically rigorous results. So I just... I just put this up to... um, my Instagram followers. I did an Insta and Facebook poll. um, And what I found is that 57% of my Instagram followers who answer polls on stories, got to clarify that because a bunch of people looked at it and didn't answer. So this isn't even a representative sample of my Instagram followers. But 57% did in fact say that they started at least one fire 
as a child. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to throw my nephews under the bus. I had two of my nephews answered this question with an immediate yes within like 30 seconds of it being posted. And I'm like, yes, I knew you did. Um, which, obviously not scientifically rigorous, but clearly there are a lot of people who do light things on fire as a kid. I think, Lauren, did you light anything on fire when you were a kid? I don't know if I necessarily lit things on fire well I take that back there were times I chose to light candles in a way that was not smart like lighting a piece of paper and then trying Mm -hmm. to transfer the paper over to the candle because science I don't know I don't know why I did that which is really normal so that's a lot of the kids fires I can't recall any times that I um lit things on fire uh, I did ask my husband if he light, lit things on fire as a kid, and his response was immediate, like, hell yes, I did, um, which he has not lit things on fire as an adult. Uh, but actually, there's a certain level that is pretty typical behavior, right? So if we're looking at the types of childhood fire starting, right? So I found this uh, from the American Psychological Association. They had a handy handy document on the different types of childhood fires starting. So the most common far and away is the non-pathological fire setters, which are entirely curiosity or accidental, right? So like Lauren lighting a piece of paper on fire to light a candle, that's a curiosity thing. Like that is your brain trying to piece together information. So it's far and away the most common type They often don't understand the consequences of playing with fire and tend to be between five and ten years old. Um, So this is... I would say from my anecdotal experience that is accurate. Um, Right. And the part that's horrifying about that is you don't really know what to expect. So I definitely remember lighting the piece of paper on fire and being like, oh, I'm just going to transfer this over to the candle to light it. And you don't realize how fast (laughs) the entire paper catches on fire. Yes, exactly. And so it, it it's a lot of times like it's just they're working on cause and effect. They're figuring out what's happening. And they also don't really think through the pros and cons of different things. Um, and I think ultimately like what it comes down to with this is that with the curiosity accidental interventions are like education parent training and potentially evaluation for adhd right like this is pretty common it's younger kids a lot of times when you teach them about it you can stop the behavior i mean the thing is if you've ever had a bonfire with kids you've seen sir curiosity fire play happening right where they'll do things that like adults know are risky they just don't know that they're actually that risky. So, and it's redirectable. Okay, another type is the cry for help, which is children who are either consciously or subconsciously using fire to draw attention to stress in their lives. Um, so this could be a kid with depression, ADHD, family stuff going on, and that kid probably needs more intensive therapy, like a fire education seminar is not going to be enough. They probably need some actual treatment at that point in time. Then there's delinquency, which is the fire setters who are showing little empathy for others, but also tend to avoid harming other people. They're typically 11 to 15 years old, 
causing more significant property damage and showing aggression and conduct problems overall. And again, this is where you start to see more like this could be a concern for further behavior issues in the future where like now we're getting to the more like there could be a conduct disorder, there could be something that could be a bigger problem as they continue to age. Um, they have a what they call severely disturbed category, which I don't like that terminology, but that is what the APA said, um, which is children with a fixation on fire could be um, a child with psychosis or paranoia who may want to harm or kill themselves or others. Um, again, now we're looking at more intensive treatment. Like, that's one where they want to set the fire. And unlike what they're saying with the delinquent, they may want to harm someone or themselves. With cognitively impaired, any child with a cognitive disorder may be more likely to light things on fire. But again, that goes more into the curiosity accidental. But it may happen, and they say sociocultural, Children who set fires primarily for support for support from peers or community groups. Um, so in that one, they even list examples as like fires that are set in a group setting, such as a riot, a religious thing, like something bigger is happening and they're just a part of this larger fire setting behavior. Um, and I think an important note on uh, curiosity the accidental side of things is also that quite frankly fire is cool and I don't mean that you know too much into that but if you really think about it like two kids fire is really interesting and in addition to that fire is pretty necessary like we use fire for preparing food we use it like there's often if you have a gas heater for your home there is a little fire in your heater right kids will see that like there are these things happening. And so it is and it's similar to like kitchen knives, right? Where kids find them interesting because they're a useful tool that's used all the time, but they are objectively dangerous in certain situations. So it's kids trying to figure out how to navigate an important world object that is inherently dangerous, which is sometimes messy. So as far as when to be concerned, um, as per the vast majority of weird things that children do, um, one of the key rules, particularly with younger kids, with like the 10 and younger crowd, if it's redirectable behavior, it's probably not that concerning. So if it's something where the kid starts doing something weird, if you're able to engage them into something else and get them to stop doing it, it's probably not that big of a deal, right? Of course, there's exceptions to the rules. And if it's repetitive behavior, you can always take your kid into meet with a therapist and just get a better idea of what's going on. But like, if your kid keeps trying to light papers on fire in the bonfire and you're like, hey, no, we can't do that. That's dangerous. Let's do this instead. And they redirect to something else. They're just that's more likely to just be curiosity based. Um, right. And I, I feel like it matters, like, if they're doing these behaviors, like, in front of you or if it's, like, a sneaky thing, like, mm -hmm. that can give you, like, information because let's say you've corrected them and, they'll, you know, you make it clear, like, hey, this is really dangerous, you can't do that. But then they continue to, like, in private, like, that's something probably to pay more attention to. 
Absolutely. Um, the other thing, too, is where you're going to purposeful fire setting. So this even says, like, as kids get older, being fascinated with fire is fairly common. And things like, like Lauren says, it even says, like, lighting paper with matches. Pretty common. Setting things on fire using a magnifying glass, like a magnifying glass to set a leaf on fire or a bug on fire, which is cruel, but a lot of kids do it. So, like, that is a kind of common behavior, right? Playing with candles or other things that have a flame, usually not a cause for concern, right? Like, that's all regular playing fire. There's one caveat to the cause for concern, which I'll get to. But if a school-aged child is deliberately setting fires, even after getting in trouble and redirection, you need to talk to the child and get professional help. Especially, like, the big red flag is setting fires to larger objects, so, like, bigger than paper or matches, or in an area where the flames can easily spread and cause injury and damage. Um... And they're saying immediately talk to a doctor or consult a mental health professional if they're exhibiting behaviors like adding more fuel to fires. Um, so, like, if you're having a campfire and you have a kid that's continuously trying to add accelerants to the fire when you've told them not to, or, like, continuously throwing more and more things in to make the fire bigger, hiding their matches... Or other things you can use to light fires, to light fires in secret. And lighting candles, fireworks, or other things, despite being told not to. So, like, if you have intervened, you've done the fire safety stuff and the behavior still happening, or the kid is doing it on purpose with larger and larger fires or trying to use accelerants, that's a pretty big red flag that something else is going on. This is past curiosity and you should get some help. But even then... Most of the things do not, like, indicate your kid is going to be a serial killer or something like the way that we talk about it. There's a huge spectrum, so it also depends on, like, okay, does your kid have ADHD and he happens to, like, fire too much? And you need to treat the ADHD, but it's probably not going to be a big deal. Or does your kid really like to start fires and want to hurt people? And are they acting out in all of these other ways? Because that is a big thing. The other caveat, just looking at, at some statistics, which brings up one other point about why childhood fire starting can be dangerous. Okay, the juvenile offenders. So in the incendiary fires reported where the suspect was listed as a juvenile offender. So an incendiary fire would be one that's on purpose. So only 2% of all of the incendiary fires they found, this is for 2020, did have a juvenile offender. Um... They were more likely to be, um, highly likely to be residential fires. They were most strongly fires set in the home, um, with also significantly, like, outdoors and education. Um, so school fires are pretty common, actually. Okay, so this one did not have exactly the information that I was looking for. These are very hard to find, but like with the kid fires, there are a decent amount of juvenile, like actual arson fires that are happening. But in addition, even from the curiosity fires, and even from the ones that are psychologically normal, there is actually a fairly high fatality rate when you look at it for fires that are set by children. Kids may do something like 
playing with a match, right? Kids may do something that is, like, a pretty typical behavior, but the location that kids may choose to play with something that could potentially get them in trouble or they are, like, doing for fun, they mo- they might do it, like, in their bedroom or in their closet where things are highly likely for a fire to start because there are so many flammable objects. Um, and also another common childhood behavior that kids do Uh, one of the things kids might start, like, if they do something and they see your mad face, they might, like, hide their face or just, like, look away or something in the toddler years. But pretty commonly as kids get older, like, if you've spent time around children, you may have seen a situation where a child, like, hits one of their parents and then crawls under the couch, right? Where, like, they know, they know they've done something that they, that's going to get them in trouble or they see an angry face. So kids may also be more likely to hide if Mm -hmm. their fire gets out. Like, if they're lighting a candle and they mess it up and light something on fire, they may be more likely to hide instead of alerting their parent to the danger immediately, which is why there can be, even with these things that aren't, like, a psychological concern, it can be quite dangerous, which is why it's important to talk heavily to your kids about fire, do your best to keep matches away from where the kids are just to reduce the likelihood of these things happening. Because unfortunately, I think kids are the highest population to die in residential fires. And a lot of times it can be, whether they started it or not, they may be more likely to crawl under their bed or in the closet and hide and not like do the things that would actually get them to safety. And mm. so there, there is also just the physical danger aspect absolutely well i even think about like child development and the brain and how kids aren't as quick to react to things like there's kind of more of like a cognitive delay just because if you think about it like they don't have a lot of experience or reference points with things right so even that in and of itself where like an adult may see like a fire that started or start a fire and then immediately go and like get water to put it out it may take them a beat and like by then it could have escalated to a point where it's like oh no right it can get out of hand really really quickly so again it's important to supervise your children and keep a close eye on it if they are exhibiting fire starting behaviors Even if they're still pretty normal, right, behaviors, like, you know, even you just lighting a piece of paper and trying to walk over to a candle, like, you could have dropped the paper and your carpet would have gone up. Like, those things can happen so quickly, and it's just that kids can't really assess the risk that well. Also, children don't necessarily have the motor skills to properly handle an object that is on fire, like an adult could to ensure that they don't drop it. So Mm -hmm. things can get out of hand really, really quickly. So if you're worried about it or it's happening at all frequently, just try to get some help pretty early. It doesn't mean that your kid is going to be like a serial killer or anything. But it means that your kid is doing something that could be harm, whether or not it's psychologically harmful or an indicator of a big issue, it could end up legitimately dangerous very, very quickly. Right. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of uh, local, like, fire departments and stuff, if you're struggling to find 
someone who can talk to your children about fire safety, I'm sure they'd be willing to have like a brief conversation or have handouts or something. I'm sure. I remember like the firefighters came to our school every Mm -hmm. single year to talk about fire safety. And I know I've seen them at public events. So you can oftentimes find some firefighters who are willing to do fire safety presentations if you need additional stuff. Yeah. You can reach out to them as well. Absolutely. And I, I feel like sometimes like coming from, you know, the person who has to put out the fires, like that is going to stick with your kid where it's like, oh, wow, like yeah. this person has a whole job dedicated to, you know, people having accidents or making mistakes with fire. Yeah, definitely. Um, so speaking of children. Yes. <laughs> uh, so something I found as I was researching this that gave me pause just because in the past we totally have talked about um, research, assessment practices, mm-hmm. things that are just kind of like questionable in psychology. Um, right. And I feel like this falls under that umbrella. So I was curious about what assessment tools people use um, with children to, you know, get ahead of, you know, uh, arsonist behavior, fire setting behavior, stuff like that. And something that keeps getting brought up is this assessment called house tree person. Mm-hmm. And Megan, you, you've heard of House Tree Person, right? I have heard of House Tree Person. I have never elected to do House Tree Person. Mm-hmm. I think my only experience with it is I think like I had to do it in a class. Yeah. But I have never elected to do it as an assessment tool with a client before. Right. Right. So House Tree Person, for those of you who don't know, it is a projective drawing test. So it's a technique that is in, helps interpret a person's feelings through drawing and has been widely used in psychological counseling for decades. Because of its lower requirements for language expression ability, it is especially useful for children and individuals with language impairments. In psychological counseling, many kinds of projective drawing tests have been proposed, um, but the house tree person test Um, is the one that's most widely used. Um, And it was put forward by Buck in 1948. Mm -hmm. So it's based on the principle that drawing can reflect people's inner thoughts. When it was developed, um, so in the testing process, the participant is asked to draw a picture containing Mm -hmm. a house, a tree, and a person. Very simple. Yes. And it's all on a piece of white paper, and then the counselor uses um, the drawing to analyze a person's mental state, emotion, personality, etc. Afterwards, the house tree person has evolved to be, or wait, okay, so we're looking at the mental state, emotion, personality. Some things that might be looked at are, okay, in the house tree person drawing, um, what's the significance if there's a chimney on the house or if there's a door on the house and what color the door is and things like that. And um, before, <laughs> before I get into this, 
so that's the protocol like I said, the counselor then uh-huh. looks at it and analyzes it. And there's certain features that they look for. Um, one of them being super vague. So, like, just to, like, pull one, um, you know, the person who's looking at it is asked, is it artistic or not? And that is an indicator of the person's mental health. And I just feel like that is such, like, a perception-based thing like my Mm -hmm. idea of somebody being artistic versus your idea of somebody being artistic is probably different yep um so I don't know how standard that is um and then also in the research there's this question of you know the person who's doing the coding or looking through the assessment like, do they have their own biases of what they feel certain things mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember in grad school being introduced to house tree person. And I remember in my tree, I put like a hole, you know, how like owls uh-huh. will yeah, yeah, yeah. go in the holes. So I was mortified because I'm pretty sure, and I'll get into it in a second, that that indicates schizophrenia. And it's like, how, though? Because mm-hmm. I drew a hole in my tree? So, like, to me, and this is us just, like, talking here, I feel like we are most likely to draw the things that we have most experience seeing and mm-hmm. can personally reference. Yes. So I yeah. was drawing trees, like, by my house growing up, you know? Right, and I think also a lot of times if you ask a kid to draw a house, they're going to draw their house. Yeah. that The most commonly. Um, and I don't disagree with the premise that drawings can reflect a person's emotional state. I fully agree on that. But I also think when you're trying to interpret drawings, your emotional state reflects your interpretation and there is a bias. And at the same time, working with kids especially and like house tree person, people can do it with adults too. So it can be interesting, but like working primarily with kids, I do do some artistic assessments. But it's a lot more about, it's not an assessment like saying, oh, this is what this kid is. It's not predictive. It's more of just... diagnostic. No, no. It's more of like we talk about it and we talk to do this. And the thing is, like, kids will run with it. And so sometimes it's just interesting of, like, kids who particularly who are in the concrete operational side of things if you're like draw me a picture with a house a tree and a person they're probably going to draw you their house the tree that's in front of their house and someone in their family themselves or maybe their mom or dad or a sibling right and so sometimes it just is it's not that it's completely terrible but this is also very psychoanalytic in nature which is not necessarily my vibe as a therapist so yeah, I, you know, I just, I feel like, like you said, it's very psychoanalytic, very Freudian. Um, and I think in terms of interpreting someone's drawing, like, like, who am I to interpret what they're drawing? You know what I mean? Like, I think you can use it as a tool, like you were saying, to have conversations yes. about what they drew. So, for example, let's say 
my client randomly drew a house, a tree, and a person, and I noticed um, they drew a picture of their family, but, you know, their dad was off to the side or something like that. I could be like, yeah, I noticed in your drawing, like, dad's kind of off to the side. Like, you know, is there a reason why you drew it like that? Or, you know, do you just not fit in the space or, you know, whatever? And it opens up conversation um, to maybe more complex things. And I think drawing can be a great outlet for kids to explain an emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, how are you feeling right now? And they can kind of draw it versus articulate it right so it can can be useful but uh i don't agree that you can necessarily predict if a kid is gonna set fires based on the house tree in a person right well and they were saying in these various different like organizations they're like well based on the research they all will draw some sort of fire in the drawing Mm -hmm. and it's like and, and the drawing they gave an example of, in my perspective, could have been blades of grass that were drawn with red crayon. So that's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's just like... And also the thing is, like, when you're dealing with this, it could be reflective of the kid's mental state or the adult's mm-hmm. mental state. It could also be that they watched a movie last night in which the house was on fire and that's the first thing that they thought of. So you need to do a lot more discussion. Um, And I don't know the exact house tree person protocol and how much discussion and explanation goes into the interpretation because I don't remember. But it could be that they really like fire. It could be that they just did a fire safety presentation at school. It could be that they watched a movie with fire. It could be that they heard there about no a house that was on fire. Crayons. Like, yeah. I mean, there, there could be a variety of different things. Or it could also be like, you know, are you guys controlling for the conversations that their parents are having before they come here? Are the mm-hmm. parents saying to the kids, hey, because you set, like, a couple fires, we have to, like, look at that now so Uh now that's like on their mind and it affects like their drawing like there's so many different things that can happen and it's just interesting that a lot of programs are using this yeah Um, and again I think it depends on the individual protocol each program is using yeah but yeah I I don't elect to do this one I have some Mm -hmm. artistic things that I will consistently do Mm -hmm. um but they're artistic to facilitate a discussion right not artistic in the sense that it directly represents yeah yeah so just for funsies I'm just gonna read you some indicators oh please do (laughs) okay so if there is a lack of drawing theme, that is an indicator of schizophrenia. If there is a lack of details in the drawing, that is an indicator of suicide or depression. If there is a small drawing area, so instead of taking up the majority of the paper, it just takes up a small amount of the paper, um, that could be schizophrenia or depression. If it's a small house, depression, schizophrenia, PTSD. Uh huh. Finally, portrait, I guess, like being more detailed about the roof, anxiety. Small windows and doors, depression. Mm-hmm. 
scars, stains, or holes in the trunk of the tree. Uh, dissociative personality disorder, PTSD, depression, anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, withered, suicide, depression, chaotic hair, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety. Like, some of these are just goofy. Uh, okay, sun, or no sun. They didn't draw a sun in the sky. Suicide or schizophrenia. Like, what? Uh-huh. I think like, my favorite is, um, just looking at this list, like, hands. Like, the hands behind being depression or anxiety. Lauren, what is the number one reason that you will often draw with hands behind the back? Because I'm not good at drawing hands. Not good at drawing hands. I've always yeah. hated drawing hands. That was a big with kids. I don't think I drew hands on this. Everyone had their hands behind the back. And I'm, I'm curious because they're, like, the number of supporting articles and yeah. it's listing like one to four, but I'm like, I would be so curious to actually read these articles. Yeah. Like, what went down in these studies? How did you get here? Because, like, I'm willing to maybe theoretically there is a strong correlation, but I also think, like, so much of this could also be explained by, like, Maybe Other the kid factors. just hates drawing, so there's, like, like, the person just really despises drawing, so they're just going to do it as quickly as possible. Like, there's there's so many alternative explanations that I think it's right. just hard. Well, and it's, like, it's interesting, because, like, for example, I'll just pull one of these. Um, okay, like, lack of drawing theme. So there isn't really, like, a theme to the drawing. There's two supporting articles, so only two studies support that this is an indicator of schizophrenia. Like, that's like a big leap, to me at least. You know, I think I would want more than two studies before I'm like, yeah, your kid has schizophrenia. Well, also, and I'd hope that they're not using this as full diagnosis, just as I like, not maybe. Either. Yeah. But I also think at that point, it's just like, some of the stuff is more subjective yeah and so i think it just gets tricky mm -hmm. to do and again i don't want to say like anyone who's doing this like i don't think it's necessarily a terrible thing to do but it really depends on how much stock you're giving to this and also right. like how much conversation you're having about why the person drew it the way that they did right but yeah, I never got on board with House Tree Person. I remember learning about it and just being like, no. Like, this is... Like like we were saying, like, I understand using art. I think that can be, like, a really amazing tool to understand, especially, like, a child, you know, what they're thinking and feeling and all of those things. Um, but yeah, I, I think, like, anything else, this assessment, you know, just with a grain of salt. You know, use what you can, but I think, like you were saying, like, not making definitive diagnoses based on house tree person. Yeah. So, interesting stuff. Interesting yeah. stuff. It is interesting. Um, so, yeah, I thought that just very quickly, um, at the end, I'd throw a story in here, because we haven't done, like, a true crime story on an episode in a while, so I thought that yeah. would be fun. So there's just one arsonist I wanted to talk a little bit about, and his name is John Leonard Orr. Have you heard of him? I think I have. 
Yeah. Just based on researching this. So he's more of a more of a popular one. Um, mainly because he was an arson investigator who was then arrested for arson. So again, like really put himself in there. Um, and again, I wasn't able to find a full psych profile for him, which would have been fun because um, I'd, I'd love doing that. But I found some information. So I think just quickly, there's a couple things I want to point out. Um, so he started off in the Air Force. He wanted to be a police officer, but was turned away from the LAPD for not passing the mental health exam. And the interesting thing is I was having such a hard time sourcing it. And I was able to find um, an excerpt from a book that was written about him where they actually obtained the psychiatric evaluation of why he was rejected from joining the LAPD. Spill the tea. You know, I love to. So what we're going to say is at least according to, and I'm not saying that the LAPD is the be all end all of like accurate psychological evaluations, but this is rarely do we have something from a psych eval. So we're just going to say this. Um, so the direct quote, and this was a book from Wamba. His author's last name is W-A-M-B-A-U-G-H. It's from his book on John Leonard Orr. So he says that the LAPD said, quote, non-acceptable applicant, reason for rejection based upon his past history and test results, currently having marital problems with separation, recently walked off a job, gave no notice, supervisors gave him poor evaluation, described him as a goof-off, know-it-all, irresponsible, and immature. The testing re-emphasizes this. Rorschach, which is, uh, we'll bring that up in a minute, showed him passive, indecisive, with problems with women and sex. The MMPI confirmed this and showed a schizoid personality who is withdrawn from people and may have sexual confusion in his orientation. Very non-objective diagnosis, personality trait disturbance, emotionally unstable personality. Um, so Rorschach is again a interesting psychoanalytical test where you look at ink blots and you say what you see yep and it tells you all about your personality um kind of uh really subjective but yeah. the mmpi is the minimo minnesota multiphasic personality index that's, correct yeah that that's, that's a bit standard that is standard. Um, and there's and so, evidence to support the effectiveness. Right. And so that one, I mean, it is interesting kind of talking about like him a goof off, know-it-all, irresponsible, immature. Um, and that, you know, being withdrawn from people. I don't love that they put that they may have sexual confusion in his orientation. But it is interesting that they're kind of talking about the emotional instability, which certain things in his behavior do indicate after getting turned down from the LAPD for this, he was turned away from the Los Angeles Fire Department. He kept applying for um, other fire departments to get in and was eventually accepted at the Glendale Fire Department. All of the articles note that the Glendale Fire Department is the lowest paying in Los Angeles County. Um, he went there, became a captain, and eventually an arson inspector. So it was his job to look at fires and investigate if they were arson or not. One of the biggest fires in October 
10th of 1984 in South Pasadena at the Ole's Home Center Hardware Store in a shopping plaza. A major fire broke out. The store was destroyed by the fire and four people were killed, including a two-year-old child, the child's 50-year-old grandmother, a 26-year-old mother of two, and a 17-year-old employee. On the following day, arson investigators from around Southern California all converged and they declared that it was an accidental electrical fire, but or insisted that it was absolutely arson. And he was proven correct. Um, they were shown that the fire was deliberately started in by the polyurethane products, which were very, like, so it was set in the right part that it would catch on really, really fast. Um, they noticed that in January of 1987, a convention for arson investigators from California was held in Fresno, and during and after the con convention, several suspicious fires were set in Bakersfield, California. Yeah, that's that's how I remember this guy, is that little detail. Yep, yep, where it's just like, no, this is definitely arson, and it's like, dude, you almost got away with it, what are you doing? Which, again, that's kind of that know-it-all stuff kicking in, which I think, like, could potentially be some, like, narcissism and needing to show off and needing to be like, no, I'm correct, but also when you're the one that set the fire, don't do that. I mean, do that because it makes you look incredibly suspicious and you eventually get caught and that's better for all of us, but, like, seriously... Um, so, they also found a fingerprint on a piece of notebook paper, um, and a time delay incendiary device. So basically, the fact that the fires were before and after the investigator convention and not during led them to believe that it had to be an arson investigator who had been setting these fires. There were even more arsons committed along the California coast. Um, in close conjunction with the convention of arson investigators in the area. So basically, they compared a list of arson investigators who attended each of those conferences, and they found 10 suspects that were present at both contexts. Um, the fingerprints initially did not match. Uh, late 90, 1990 to 91, another series of arson fires broke out. This time around LA, a large task force, nicknamed the Pillow Pyro Task Force, um, reference to the arson fire set in pillows, was formed to apprehend the arsonist. Um, on March 29th of 1991, the arson task force circulated a flyer at a meeting. Um, so they formed different groups. They did all of these things. They described that the suspected serial arsonist. They kind of went over the MO and like connected it all. Um, they were compiling information on lots of different fires um, and eventually successfully matched the fingerprint to ore in April of 1991 with the help of improved fingerprint technology. Uh, so he was arrested after his fingerprint matched. Um, basically, they convicted him in 1992 on three counts of arson while acquitting him on two other counts. The federal judge sentenced Orr to 30 years in prison. He maintained his innocence, notwithstanding his subsequent guilty plea in March of 93 on three more counts of arson in Los Angeles after reaching the plea agreement. Saw him paroled from federal prison in 2002. 
he took a plea deal when it, he couldn't afford to mount a defense. Um, in 94, he was charged with four counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances and 21 counts of arson for a string of fires setting from 84 to 1990. Um, they sought out the death penalty to ensure that he would spend the rest of his life in prison. He made an off-the-record offer to Orr if Orr accepted a sentence of life without parole and confessed in open court they would take the death penalty off the table or turn the offer down. Um, a jury convicted him on all four murder counts and all but one of the arson counts. Um, there was one that was dismissed for whatever reason. They asked to sentence to the death penalty. The jury was split, so he has been sentenced to four concurrent life terms without parole, plus an additional 21 years. So, he's in prison now. Um, but Seems fair. Seems very fair, right? They vacated nine years of his state sentence. Okay. Um, after finding out that Light that the burning of homes had only been incidental to his objective of starting a bushfire. But, I mean, he's staying in prison. So some interesting things about this. Um, Mars investigators and an FBI criminal profiler have deemed Orr to be possibly one of the worst American serial arsonists of the 20th century. Um, <laughs> an ATF agent believes that he set nearly 2,000 fires between 1984 and 1991, and arson investigators determined that after he was arrested, the number of brush fires in the nearby foothill areas decreased by more than 90% as soon as this one guy went to prison. So Whoa. he was setting a lot of fires, um, mm -hmm. as it turns out. His daughter... Lori did testify on behalf of him in defense of the trial, and it prevented him from receiving the death penalty. After maintaining his innocence for years, she now fully believes he's guilty and has gone non-contact with him. Wow. But some interesting things about, like, his arrest and some of the evidence that they found that I think indicate some personality things and some of maybe what the psych profile was getting at, um... So he, when he was arrested, they searched his home and vehicle, and here's some evidence that they found. A black canvas bag that was holding, among other things, a pack of unfiltered camel cigarettes, two books of matches, a cigarette lighter, a plastic baggie containing rubber bands, and seven paper bags. So this is the stuff for the incendiary device. Like Lauren said, a lot of times it is cigarettes. In this case, they found the exact cigarettes and rubber bands and everything that matched how all of these fires were starting. Behind the driver's seat and under the floor mat, they found... Of his his actual fire department car, by the way. This was, like, in his work vehicle. Um, they found a steno pad of yellow-lined paper, which is the paper that they found the fingerprint on, so it matched mm. the paper. They found videotapes of various fires. They found two drafts of his novel. We're going to talk about his novel a little bit, too. Oh, boy. Um, an earlier dated draft of only three chapters in which the delay device is described as a match attached to a cigarette placed inside a paper bag, which is what these ones were, a later dated complete draft of the novel, um, 
in which Orr has removed the matches in the paper bag and turned it into a bead of glue on a cigarette. Copies of letters from Orr to literary agents and publishers with a copy of the manuscript to his novel, which included the following passages. Points is the story of a serial arsonist and the investigator who tracks him in Southern California. Aaron, the arsonist, is actually a firefighter, and Phil Langtree slowly develops the theory that the suspect is somehow related to the fire department. Uh, my arsonist is sexually slash psychologically motivated, and Points is somewhat fact-based. There is an arsonist plying his trade in the West, and he sets the same types of fires portrayed in my novel. Quote, my novel is fiction, but is based on a real arsonist who has again hit the LA area earlier this year, doing over 12 million in damage. The investigation now has federal assistance and could be linked to fires outside California. It is my feeling that this arsonist could be a firefighter, but I'm not directly linked to the investigation and can't confirm this fact. My work is a facts-based novel of an ongoing investigation here on the West Coast. A serial arsonist is setting fires through the West and quite possibly a firefighter. The series has been going on for over five years and was and I was even considered a suspect at one point. In early May this year, I found a radio tracking device attached to my car in San Luis Apisbo while I was attending a training conference. Ironically, my protagonist experiences the same situation. No way. I've already written the chapter dealing with the protagonist being tailed before I found out that I was being followed. By the way, I'm not the arsonist. <laughs> and the investigation Very out believable. here continues. My work is fictional. Also, just a funny investigative fact, he found the first tracking device on his car. There were two. He didn't find the second one. Oh, well, there so, you it. didn't look that thoroughly. Other things that were in the manuscript of his fire, which I like that he had so many copies of his manuscript that you could clearly tell the edits that were coming out as more evidence was coming out about these fires. Like, mm-hmm. pretty clear-cut tract. Um... But in the book, Points of Origin, which, by the way, did get published. But, really? Um, so, yes, you can read this book. Um, but one of Orr's fires took place at a Kmart shopping center. So did the one in the book. Uh, two fabric stores belonging to the same chain were set on fire, which was the case in real life. The go-to incendiary device was made out of a cigarette and matches held together with rubber bands. So were the devices of the real California fires. The most alarming connection between the manuscript was and the real-life fires was the Olay's home, fire center, home center case. In Points of Origin, the protagonist set a Pasadena hardware store ablaze. Five people die, two of which were a woman and her toddler grandson. In the 1984 Pasadena fire, in which four lives were lost, two of them matched the victims in, in Orr's book, Ada Deal and her grandson, Matthew Triodal. There was also a detail that put Orr right at the scene before the actual store fire. So Orr wrote in the manuscript that the fictional grandmother was going to take her grandson out for mint chocolate chip ice cream after their trip to the hardware store. As it turns out, this was true in real life, and the only person who knew that they were going out for mint chocolate chip ice cream after the store was the child's grandfather, who was in the store and narrowly escaped. So that is an accurate detail of the real fire. 
that put Orr at actually in the store before the fire happened. So I think the presence of the book, um, and I, I was having trouble finding some quotes for it, but he it is deeply sexually motivated in the book as well. Um, I read an interview from Orr's daughter, the one who originally defended him, who has openly talked about how disgusting she finds the book because she's like, this is clearly my dad. And like, she's like, yeah. my dad was setting stuff on fire because it turned him on. And that's something that I know about him now. And there's like pretty it's graphic gross. masturbatory scenes involving fires in the book. But I think also it does lend and again we're not diagnosing anything but right. like some of the like the know-it-all the attitude where like you can some of it reads fairly narcissistic right in the letter just like I was even a suspect but I'm not the killer and I wrote this before I knew about that isn't that funny like some of the things and the fact that he was writing a novel that like word that mimicked the exact crimes he was in fact committing is just really interesting and I think displays some of those like psychological factors for some of them mm -hmm. of like there's other stuff going on right, like people things in play right people aren't just setting fires like in a vacuum when it's a dangerous it's in the context of a bunch of stuff yeah yeah so that one, I just Scary. thought, we don't have a ton of concrete information, but I just think his is really interesting because it also mimics some of the stuff from, like, the dark triad personality fates, sure. traits and, like, inserting yourself into the investigation and certain other things that I found yeah. interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. I, yeah, there are little details from that that I definitely remember seeing on like unsolved mysteries or something like that <clears throat> well no it was solved so maybe it was just like a random documentary to be fair unsolved mysteries uh did have a lot of the cases do get solved so you might have seen it in the updates you, you like oh, hear the sassy update music can't you i can't like yeah, yeah. like oh yeah but i think that is that is it on arson for today um, yeah Thank yeah. you. Thanks everyone for joining. Lauren, do you have do you have some good shit that you would like to share today with our lovely fans? I think I do. Um bu -bu 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 -bum. Well, let's see. Well, coming up we have um a it's not like a crazy trip, but we're planning a trip to take Benny to the Shed Aquarium for the first time. And we're very excited, and I think he's going to be very excited. So That is going to be so exciting. Mm -hmm. Please send me pictures of his face just looking at a fish tank, because it's going to be adorable. I'm so excited. Um, what's your good shit? Uh, my good shit is that my husband and I are going out to brunch today. Mm. And I love brunch. I'm, like, getting three brunches in the next week, and I fucking love brunch. So, my good shit is just brunch. Brunch is the best. I'm so it's happy like for you. It's, like, peak millennial, but man, do I love brunch. Me too. It's so good. So good. Well, thank you, guys. If... If you need some ideas of things to do, go get brunch and go to the Shed Aquarium. Highly recommend. Get brunch and look at fish. That's right.
There we go. All right, guys. Well, thank you for getting spooky. Thanks. Bye. Bye.